Welcome to the Mitzvah Minute. We're going to share with you this week an insight into a fairly well-known Jewish mourning ritual, um, which some people may have come across, some people may not have, and we hope never to have to go through uh, a loss in a family and have to be acquainted with these laws. But it actually appears in this week's Torah portion, so I'd like to share with you one of the morning customs. It's not a law from the Torah, it's not biblical, but it does appear in the Torah, and it uh, it's brought down as a very strong and ancient Jewish custom that not only uh, as it appears in the Torah, but also as codified through the Talmud and Jewish law. And it comes out of a story in this week's Torah portion that uh, Jacob who is the forefather of the Jewish people, is cooking a stew of lentils. And his brother Esav, who uh, is twin brother's older twin brother, comes in and he sees this pot of lentils and he says, give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob says to him, I'll give you this lentil soup on condition that you give to me the birthright. You're the older son, and therefore you're entitled to the rights of the older son, which is essentially a spiritual legacy, that you have the the obligation to pass on the mission of Isaac and Abraham, your father and grandfather. And it comes along with it certain spiritual obligations and privileges. And Esau says, what do I need this first born rights for, I'm anyway going to die, just give me that food. And he eats the food and essentially Jacob then becomes the firstborn son and the heir to the Jewish legacy, the Jewish nation. So what's going on in the story? Why does Esau come in and say, give me that red stuff? And the Torah actually says that from then on, Esau became known as Red, Edom, because he ate the red, he called the food the red stuff. And why was Jacob serving this food? What's the big deal? What's the story with the firstborn rights and everything? What's going on in this story? So the Talmud explains that Yaakov, Jacob, was actually making this lentil soup because his grandfather, Abraham, had passed away that day. And there is a custom that when someone returns from burying a relative, there's a custom to have a meal, a special meal called a sudas havra, which essentially means like a, a meal of healing or a meal of recovery. And the, the customs of this, there are some varied customs here, but in general, the rules of this meal are that you shouldn't make the food yourself. The mourners should not be engaged in preparing the food. And neighbors or friends or relatives make the food for them. And the food customarily consists of, in America, many people eat bagels, or bagels and eggs, bagels and locks. Traditionally, according to the Talmud, the meal consists of either eggs or lentils or chickpeas. Why is that? What do these three foods, four foods have in common? Eggs, chickpeas, lentils, and bagels. They're all round. And the Talmud explains that this, this symbolizes the circle of life, that life is a cycle. And in the simplest level, Death is a part of life, and it's something that everyone goes through. And it's a tragedy, and it's an experience of being very much alone, but the message is that you're not alone, you're going through a human experience that everyone will someday go through or has been through. 
And that's one of the reasons why neighbors prepare the food to let the mourners know that although you feel totally isolated and alone in the world, we want you to know that we're here for you. Other explanations that I saw um, to explain why the neighbors or the family uh, relatives, extended family, prepare the food is to let the, because sometimes a mourner might have an inclination to starve themselves, to not eat. They have no appetite. They're feeling so broken inside. And so the neighbors come over to make sure that they eat, to let them know that life has to continue. And another explanation, which is really opposite, is that the, the mourners might have an inclination to drown their sorrows by overeating. And again, the neighbors want them to know, no, you got to take this in a healthy way. Don't overeat. Don't drown your sorrows. The idea of Jewish mourning is to, in, it serves many purposes, but one of them is to enable the mourners, who then are going to sit for a period of seven days, it's called Shiva, to sit and allow family and relatives to just come and join them. And the laws of mourning is that you join the the mourner, you sit with them, and you're not allowed to say anything. You just sit with them. If they talk to you, you're allowed to talk back, but you don't say, how are you? Don't try to cheer them up. Sit with them, letting them know the primary message is, I'm here for you. You're not alone. And this is such an important message because there are so many people who are going through tragedies and suffering, and we really don't even know what they're going through. And oftentimes you can't even relate because everyone's experiences are so different. The message is, is that you feel alone and you are alone in so many ways because your experience is unique, but we want you to know that we're with you. You're alone with us. You don't have to suffer in silence. And so the mourner gives that more opportunity to just be comforted by the presence of others. It gives the mourner the opportunity to talk about the loved one. And that serves not only the mourner a very big uh, consolation, but also for the soul of the departed to listen to people talking about the good qualities about them and the good positive memories. And in some ways, it also prevents the mourner from wallowing and dwelling and getting into an even deeper depression because we, we force them to be with other people and to get the thoughts out of their head instead of keeping them inside their head. So that's what Jewish mourning is all about. And Judaism recognizes the necessity of grieving and feeling the pain of loss. However, Judaism also says that we can't take it too far. Why is that? Because there's a circle of life. There's a cycle of life. We're, we make a blessing when someone passes away on receiving the news of the death of a, of a close relative. There's a blessing that's made. Baruch atah Hashem. Blessed are you Hashem, Elokeinu Melech creator of the universe, Bar Dayan Ha'emes, the true judge, in recognition that there is, this is for a reason, we don't understand it, but that it's just, even though the loss feels completely unjust and without meaning that we can understand. But the Talmud actually says that we make this blessing, even though we're making a blessing acknowledging that there's bad, it feels bad, and we're acknowledging that it's bad, but at the same time we're recognizing that it's for a good reason. But the Talmud says we're supposed to make it with the same faith and enthusiasm and joy that we would make a blessing on good news. How can we do that? How could it be? And the answer is, is that although the emotions are real and we have to go through the mourning period, which is a full year in Judaism, of feeling suffering and sadness and going through the emotional process of letting go of a loss. And there, there are five stages of grief, as brought, explained in psychology, um, which really correlate to the different processes that go on um, throughout the Jewish morning year. But the main emphasis is that although we have to feel this pain, we also have to recognize that it's somehow part of a purpose, a bigger 
purpose because a person is in this world to fulfill a mission and when their time comes when they fulfilled their mission they're no longer in the world and that although it feels like there's no no meaning behind it there is a meaning and that's the second meaning reason that we eat bagels or round foods at after a funeral is to recognize that death in Judaism is just a portal to a new dimension it's the beginning of real life because this world the Talmud explains is just an, an, an antechamber a foyer a dressing room to get ready to enter into the real existence which is the spiritual reality that takes place after we leave this world so Esav the word Esav Esav represents the Western world according to the Torah he went on to found Rome and and Western ideology that Esav comes from the word done made he sees the world as an end in itself he sees the physical world. what do I need this for he says I'm just gonna die what do I need this spirituality for I'm just gonna die I want to live in this world now I want to enjoy life in the moment eat drink and make merry for on the morrow we die to the point that he doesn't even see what kind of food is he just sees it for its color give me that red stuff and and that is the message of the western world is it sees the world as an external shell judaism always looks at the world for what it is on the inside a perfect example of this is that the word face in english comes from the latin word face facade fake exterior surface Whereas the word face in Hebrew, panim, means interior, panimiu, panimius, the inner workings. Because the, the face can either be an external shell, a mask that we show the world, or it can reveal who we really are on the inside. The eyes are the mirror to the soul. So Judaism always looks at the inner world, and that's the message of Yaakov. Esav means done, finished, made. Yaakov comes from two two Hebrew words uh, Yud the letter Yud which connotes spirituality and the word Akev which means ankle or heel which is the lowest part of the body to bring spirituality in to the physical that's the message of Jacob to see deeper there's more than meets the eye we see ourselves as a body that possesses a soul and then death is truly a tragedy because the body is no longer but if you see the soul as being the foundational part of who you are then the body is just a vessel that contains the soul and it's a tragedy because the two had an intimate connection in this world but the the essence of the person continues and that's the soul that's the afterlife so i want to uh, conclude with one other idea from this week's torah portion that brings out this idea that um it says that asaf grew up to be a hunter and i'll read to you exactly what the torah says asaf was a was a hunter he knew asaf knew how to hunt he was a man of the field. Yaakov, on the other hand, was pure. He dwelled in tents, and the Torah, the commentaries explain that these refer to tents of meditation, prayer, and Torah study. Yitzchak, the Torah says, loved Esav because he fed him game that he trapped and hunted. And Rivka, on the other hand, loves Jacob. And if you note, it says Yitzchak loved Esav in the past tense, and Rivka loved Jacob in the present tense. Yitzchak loved Esau for a reason, because he gave him food to eat, and Rivka doesn't give any reason. So if we look at these two statements about Esau and Yaakov, both contain an, something that they do. Esau is a hunter, and Jacob dwells in tents, and they both contain something about who they are. Esau is a man of the field, and Yaakov is a pure man. 
But it's very interesting that the order of these two statements are opposites. It says Esav was a hunter. First it says what he does, and then it tells us who he was. He was a man of the field. Jacob, on the other hand, it says was a pure man. And then it says what he does, he dwelled in tents. Because Esav's world is your actions, what you do defines who you are. When you meet someone at a party, the first thing you ask after finding out where the drinks are is, what do you do? And the answer we inevitably give is, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant. In the world of Esav, in the Western world, you are what you do. In the world of Jacob, what you do is an expression of who you are. Jacob's essence of being a pure man defines what he does. He therefore chooses to dwell in tents. You're not a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. You're a human being. You're a Jew. You are a spiritual being who happens to do doctor stuff throughout the day or do lawyer stuff throughout the day. Who we are is who we are on the inside, our values our spirituality, our character traits, our moral choices, our passions. That's who we are on the inside. What we do can either be an expression of who we are or sometimes an expression of not who we are. Sometimes we do things that don't align with our values and our character. Sometimes we get drawn after external pressures and external desires and other people's values or societal values. But ultimately, the Torah teaches that the goal of the Jewish people, the goal of Jacob is to be who you are, to live who you are, and let that, let what you do become an, out, an overflow of who you are, but don't let what you do define you. And if you live like that, then it's unbelievable, because when you make mistakes, you don't have to let your mistakes define you either. If your successes don't you have to define you, your mistakes don't have to define you either. And who you are is your ability to grow, to change, to learn from your mistakes, to rectify things. That's who you really are. That's who we really are on the inside. And this is an unbelievable lesson for us to learn in our lives. So the Torah continues and says that Yitzchak loved Esav. Why? For what he did. Why did he love him in the past tense? Because it was based on what happened in the past. It was conditional love. Rivka, on the other hand, loved Yaakov, period. She loved him in the present for who he was, for who he is now in the present moment. And that's what true, unconditional love is based upon. Not what you do, but who you are. So we should all be blessed to recognize that this world is an opportunity to build our spiritual world. And we do that by connecting to our true essence and by building a life of values and choices where we can choose to overcome our physical nature and our exteriors and the, and the, and the materialism of this world. We can live this world as an end in itself, like Esau, or as a means to build a spiritual future. Thank you so much for listening. Wishing you a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos.